Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by Eva Lawitz. I first knew Eva as the bassist for Sister Helen, a long-running DIY band in Brooklyn, uh, but then continued to run into her playing session gigs for a whole host of acts like Vagabond and Princess Nokia. After the dissolution of Sister Helen, Eva formed Stimmerman as an outlet for her songwriting and has since released an EP, a full length, and most recently, a score for the video game Get a Grip Chip, which is available on Steam now. We spoke about her compositional process, what she's learned as a session player and engineer, and much, much more. Thank you for listening. I don't think I, I, I wouldn't claim that I know you particularly well. Mm-hmm. Like you're someone that I've seen around pretty much the New York music scene since I like was in it at all since we were both like in like high school. Uh huh. And then every once in a while I would just be like at some <laughs> random show and like, Oh, Eva's in this band. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that like would keep happening for like 15 Same years. To you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think about the last time or like, yeah, the last time I saw you in person, and I'm pretty sure it was like 10 years ago, probably, at the Yippie Cafe. Is there a possibility that that's right? That's the last time. That's definitely the last time we played a show together. Um, okay. I'm I try- just remember having a conversation. It was whenever uh, The Hunter had come out, the Mastodon album. Right. And I just remember that you... And Jack Greenleaf were really like hating on it. And I was agreeing with you just to not rock the boat, even though I really liked it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no. You were playing in Vagabond with that show? Is Pro- that right? Probably Sister Helen, oh. if I had to guess. Oh, was this in Chicago? Oh, no. It was in New York. But okay, that's right. So I would have also seen you in Chicago. Right. Yeah. So there was that show in Chicago. Yeah. And then I that think would that be was sig- the significantly last time. less than ten years ago. Then probably like three or four years ago. Yeah, I, 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 when I was last living in Chicago in like 2016, so yeah, yeah, closer to four years. That but makes sense. You kind of like stayed on the periphery of all of my various music in- interests. Yeah, you know, you seem to be like staying busy. So I'm excited to like have the the time to like finally hear your side of the story so to speak got nothing but time now baby (laughs) seriously (laughs) so i guess like just to sort of lay the groundwork let's start right at the beginning like how did you first start playing music um i started on piano i have two older brothers one who's 10 years older than me and one who is four years older than me and so they both started on the piano before i was born My mom is a musician. She's an oboist. During this interview, you may have the pleasure of hearing her make some reads. I can hear it now. Okay. Maybe you'll be able to hear it later on. It's a very piercing sound. (laughs) So yeah, musical household, I guess, is the the short answer. But I started on piano when I was seven, and then upright bass shortly thereafter, maybe like fourth grade, I started to play like a eighth-sized upright Mm bass and then my brother jonathan got an electric bass for his bar mitzvah uh, which i commandeered 
And then Sister Helen formed in sixth grade, and that carried me through up till like age 25. <laughs> That's, yeah, that is an unbelievable fact in and of itself. Like that was the, the, of all the bands that were from that Brooklyn scene of our generation, yeah. y'all probably have like, maybe like you and nobody in the somebody's had like the longest tenure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they, you know, I guess they can't change that they're related. I don't know what excuse we have. It's just sheer fucking willpower that we stayed together for that mm-hmm. long. It's like a, you know, not, it, not to, I don't want to compare it to like a bad marriage. We had many great times, but it was just like, at some point somebody had to like really put their foot down and decide that it was over. Cause I think, everyone would have just kept going if it wasn't for that. What do you attribute that longevity towards? Like, why do you think that band stuck together for so long? I I mean, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, I think at least part of it was that we all really liked the music that we were making. And I think that there's definitely like a special, I'm sure you've experienced this, but like, I think there's, there's a, you know, a kind of special magic to having a band that lasts that long because you get so used to playing with each other that you're like, you know, you can do like telekinesis and stuff with each other. And the band itself was just so energetic. I felt like we got to that like really transcendent performance thing a lot. And beyond that, I think once we started touring in 2015, it just became one of those things where like we had put so much time and like tears and blood and like beer into it that it was just like you know you get in that headspace where you're like this has to mean something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you don't want to quit but helen ultimately like walked from the band and that uh, that was like and a part of my soul i was like oh thank god (laughs) (laughs) but you were doing other musical projects outside of sister helen as well during most of that period of time right yeah yeah so um in the time when we were really hitting it hard with the touring and stuff, I was also in Vagabond during that time, and there were a few tours with that. I was in a, like a bunch of bands in, in the city, and like a, a handful of other bands that that toured. And naming them all would be embarrassing for me and them, so I'll <laughs> refrain. But they were <laughs> funny. And then in my childhood, I was like, uh, I didn't play in that many bands, but I was really into the upright and so I did like a lot of you know I went to like the the like specialized high schools and middle schools and stuff and played in orchestras and ISO and uh, stuff like that like Mm -hmm. and took a lot of private lessons and yeah I mean if you have like a musical family it seems logical that you'd go through a pretty rigorous academic side of that as well yeah Um, I think a lot of that has to do with my mom's experience like she definitely comes from a world that's very informed by the politics of the classical music world which is she would always tell me you know growing up that like oh if you want to be a musician there's gonna have to be some period of your life where you're really committing to like shedding like you know six to eight hours a day and I just thought that was the only path forward with music Mm -hmm. and I'm glad I did it but like obviously that's not true (laughs) (laughs) well it's one only one part of the puzzle I would say there's a ton of other (laughs) ways that people grind in other ways to get into the the places yeah. that they are. Uh, but so you were coming up through sort of like a classical system. Cause I, I would also imagine that upright bass lends itself pretty well to jazz and whatnot. Yeah. So were you more on, you were more on the classical end of that? 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, I was um I was just really into the bass. Like I I I feel like my attitude when I was a kid was just that I wanted to be like great at the upright bass and so for a long time I was really focused on like it's hard to say when you're like a kid but like I I guess the path that one would be on to become like a bass player in an orchestra and then at some point in high school like I kind of got very passively into jazz just because there was you know like at LaGuardia like a little jazz program and I had a lot of friends who were like really into that and uh Clint from Sister Helen we you know played together all the time and he was super duper fucking into jazz and mm-hmm. so I felt like if uh if I didn't learn about it then I would be like socially whipped or something so and I started getting and then in college I got like genuinely into it mm-hmm. <laughs> You also went to college for music then, I'm assuming? Yeah, I went to the City College of Uh New York, but I was, like, deep, deep in my shed phase then. And since Sister Helen started earlier than that, you must have also been getting into more rock-oriented music at some point as well. Yeah, I feel like rock is probably, like, the real language of my soul. (laughs) (laughs) I just loved rock! Um... Yeah, I think that was my most, like, genuine musical interest for my entire life. It's like, basically, I like loud drummers. <laughs> and I feel like that was, like, for a very long time, that just meant that I was going to listen to rock music. And then when I started to actually like different kinds of things that are, like, jazz and jazz adjacent, and I realized that the drummers are also very loud, then I liked that, too. Well, how did you get into the world of loud drummers and rock music and whatnot like what was your introduction to that hard to say i think the first i mean i'm not totally sure what the criteria for answering that is but like i my first big band that i felt like i came to not through my parents music collection was uh system of a down (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then i really liked i just like loved them i just thought that was like the best the best thing that could have happened Yep. to culture <laughs> <So>. <laughs> very much in the same boat in middle school yeah. like hearing chop suey just like blew the back of my head open you know yeah totally i got the and then yeah i heard t- like the stuff on i think i was like at summer camp or something and some crappy band at the summer camp covered aerials and then i was like well, let me go see what this is all about and then i was just yeah, just like totally obsessed after that. And in retrospect, I mean, you can never like shake your influences from that age, I think. But like, I'm not even totally sure I like a lot of the drumming on that. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not even I'm st- I'm not sure I'm still persuaded by it. Yeah, I, well, yeah. you know, it doesn't help that their drummers kind of completely ruined his public image. <laughs> but um <laughs> I also, shortly before lockdown, somebody told me that they saw him doing, like, a cover set at Arlene's Grocery, and I just thought that was the funniest shit ever. Like, why is John Dalmayan (laughs) playing, like, a cover band at Arlene's? Weird. That made me feel some sort of weird, like, cosmic, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a little schadenfreude-y, but I'm like, well, if John Dalmayan's playing at Arlene's, then I'm doing all right, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, totally. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, what's interesting is I feel like that kind of interest in like heavier stuff, because you also, you know, you mentioned you're, I know that you're a big Mastodon fan, for example, and 
that side of rock influence didn't feel quite like what was going on in the Brooklyn scene as we were coming up. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like Sister Helen got kind of like poked fun at a bunch because we just didn't care that we were like like super into new metal <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're you were just like a hair late and in the wrong part of the country you know <laughs> i feel like once we discovered touring and got to like chicago and like parts of the south and the midwest i was like okay this is where we should have been the whole time <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i'm assuming that the delay for not touring with that project until 2015 was due to school or were there other Mm -hmm. issues that also made it difficult no i mean it was mostly school i I don't think it was even something that we considered until we graduated but yeah i mean i'm i was the person who like booked all of those tours and and did that side of things for that band and like i just you know for me that's just like a just like a theme of panic like once i graduated college i was just like Oh, what's next? Mm-hmm. I've got it. I must. I gotta do accomplishments. I need to accomplish, and so then I, you know, just like forced myself to learn how to book DIY tours, and that you know that carried us through a couple, a couple years, and then we broke up in 2017. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. did you go to school for performance in college, or were you there for uh, maybe some of the other sides of the? I was. Yeah, I was a jazz performance major. Mm-hmm. At the City College of New York. Why why jazz performance? Well, the bass teacher there at the time was John Petitucci. And I basically, I just wanted to take lessons with him mm-hmm. and like see if he could give me any secrets about how to play the bass good or music in general. And he did. And then I feel like the entire school system attached to that was just sort of like a thing I had to do to to justify taking lessons with this guy and and dedicating a large portion of my day to practicing and the you know it was city college so it was like extremely affordable mm-hmm. that was basically my I wasn't like I didn't go into that program thinking like I'm gonna be a like a jazz bass player Maybe when I was a couple years into it, I had like a phase of feeling that way, but it passed pretty quickly. I feel like uh, it was more of like a, I don't want to di- like diminish the, like the the richness of like learning, of like all the learning I did by saying it was like a side quest. But like for my, for me personally, like that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of what it was. Mm-hmm. What would the main quest have been at that time then? <laughs> I mean, at that time I was all in, you know, for that. But like in the in the broader picture, like I, I don't know exactly like how I what the best way to pin it down was, but I, I feel like my main focus is like probably writing, probably writing music, mm-hmm. I would say, and like certainly that that era of my life, I learned a lot about harmony that I don't think I would have learned otherwise, and like I definitely got my ass kicked up and down in terms of like my overall sense of like musicianship uh which was very important (laughs) to to who i am now were you writing songs at that point too like was sister helen fairly democratic or were you writing stuff outside of that what was the state of your writing i've always like written i've always written a little bit like 
probably since the end of middle school or the beginning of high school. I've always made like little demos and written little snippets of things. And then, well, maybe even earlier than that, because I was writing stuff for Sister Helen. But the, the way it would work in that band is that either me or Chris would write like an entire instrumental piece of music, record a demo of it, usually with like programmed drums, and then give it to Helen. And she would usually write us lyrics and a melody based on the title that we had given the instrumental demo. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't democratic in any way. It was just like somebody writes an instrumental piece and then somebody else you know, screeches over it, which was amazing. And then it, it probably wasn't until I got like... Yeah, until I was well well into the end of college and the beginning of being on tour all the time that I started to, like, complete songs that were songs with lyrics and stuff like that. What led you to start, like, taking that step into writing your own lyrics? I think I always wanted to do it, and then I just sort of had to admit to myself, like, I was just terrified that I would write something trite and humiliating which I did (laughs) but like I think I I, you know at some point I just sort of conceded that that was going to be necessary to eventually writing something good but I mean in terms of like what I strive to do I think like I'm always trying to make feel like something that I've made is is coherent in and of it itself, that it's its own little world. You know, as things went on with Sister Helen, it just sort of, like, became clear that you're never going to have that in a band of four people. Something that's that's that you created that's completely coherent to your worldview and it's expressible and all that stuff. So I just, like, took it upon myself to start finishing songs, which is hard to do. And this is like basically the birth of the Stimmerman project, or was there an in-between intermediary between before that? No, I mean, it was basically, uh, yeah, I mean, Sister Helen, we played our last show in January of 2017, and then I recorded the first Stimmerman EP at September of 2017. And the first EP was basically like, you know, that songwriting process that I described earlier, like entire instrumentals, most of that EP is that, right? Like I wrote a whole instrumental kind of expecting that eventually Helen would be completing it. Mm -hmm. But then once that band ended, I was just like, all right, well, you know, what is there to do but to do it? And once I released it and I wasn't, you know, publicly stoned to death, I was like, okay, I can... (laughs) Nobody nobody has realized that I'm bad, so I guess it's safe to keep going. <laughs> what point did you get to in terms of writing for like for a lyrical or conceptual level that you described that you felt comfortable enough putting your neck on the line for public stoning, so to, as you put it? <laughs> what level did I have to get to? That's what you're asking? Yeah, well, what what did you decide that you were willing to write about and have out in the public that wasn't embarrassing i'm still kind of like if someone were to pick apart my lyrics i would definitely be embarrassed by them but i started just like trying to make non-contrived sentiments you know what i mean like just trying to 
say something that I could intimate that I actually felt and then completing completing that thought without any further contrivance I guess like my main objective was to just not be contrived or not you know not to do anything that felt dishonest mm-hmm. which is like I also have like a desire like a reptilian brain desire to be like clever and it's very hard for me to flush that out so like trying to just trying to get rid of that when I felt like I had stripped away any contrived cleverness and I I mean I've gone through many rounds of editing with a lot of this stuff where I'm just erasing and erasing and erasing and starting over but I mean I feel like that's a style that a lot of people have where it's just like there's no I'm never I just have made peace with the fact that I'm never going to be satisfied really with anything that I make so at a certain point you just have to like walk away right having having worked a lot like on other people's music on the other side of the glass like I've learned a lot about that mistake where people will do endless revisions and they'll want to come back to the studio and back and back and back and re-record and fix little things and like for me I would never want to do that to myself or anyone else so if I can live with it I'll put it out you know (laughs) Yeah, I was going to eventually ask about like one thing that I, I love asking people that live on both the session world and the like solo release world is because at least in my experience, like I've found that working with like a wide range of other musicians has helped like sort of sharpen my own toolbox. Yeah, for sure. So outside of the sort of negative lesson of learning like not to endlessly procrastinate and like yeah. run away from the finish line. Were there any like positive lessons that you took from working with other musicians in a session capacity that you've been able oh, to apply to your own work? Every single time. I mean, like I I mean, I feel like a big part of my process for writing is just like that you know, any anything that goes in eventually is going to come back out. So like one of the great that's to me that's like one of the great things about working on other people's music is that like I I don't get tired of, you know, like doing a hundred takes of something because to me every time we do a new take is like you know my my brain soaks it up a little bit more mm-hmm. and at some point you know maybe not this week or next week or like a couple of years down the line it's going to get spit back out of my brain filtered through some other music and some other experiences and like that to me is like one of the more incredible things about working with a lot of people i i feel like at this point in my like musical lifespan or whatever like it's hard for me to know like what I need to work on a lot of the times so like working on other people's music to me is like the fastest way to gain a new perspective mm-hmm. on like where my own different musical vocabularies or like my approach to writing or approach to like communicating with other musicians like what what things I've overlooked and uh you know there's like infinite different avenues you could go down and but you never know what they are until you see the entrance to them right so to me that's like the best the be- easily the best thing about working on other people's stuff. Sure. Uh, can you name an example of like a skill or something that you believe that you overlooked in an earlier part of your, you know, musicianhood that now has been made clearer to you since kind of going through the ringer of working with other people? 
it's rarely it's rarely anything like that broad for me at this point i mean i'm sure it could be but like if i'm recording somebody else and like just the way that they've written a song like a certain way that they've chosen phrases or like certain voicings that they use at the like piano or the guitar or whatever or like certain ways that the different instruments are relating to each other or like even something as simple as like somebody comes up with a really unique groove and I just think like I would have never thought of that then to to me it's in like my nature to go back and dissect it and like put it all on a grid and like you know transcribe everything and be like okay well like how did this person arrive at this and how can I utilize it Mm -hmm. mostly stuff like that it's it's basically like stuff that I can munch up like that it's really like a broad philosophical sort of thing. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't shy away from talking about the more nitty gritty musical yeah. stuff. So it, don't be afraid to go too granular if need be at any point. Um, don't worry. I have plenty of vague philosophical things we can talk about too. <laughs> Hopefully a nice balance between the two, yeah. I guess. Um, so you mentioned recording other people. I'm assuming that you also mean at that point that you've got the studio up and running, uh, Wonder Park. When did that get started and how did that come about? Well, Chris, who was also in Sister Helen, he's he's been like engineering, you know, for since, you know, childhood. I'm, we all know people like that in the city, right? Who like just got hell bent on Pro Tools at a young age, like, but... So he's always been doing that, and he's like a super crazy genius at it. And at some point, you know, there was sort of a lull after Sister Helen broke up. And then Carlos Hernandez from uh, you know, Gravesend Recording, and you know, he's Ava Luna and all that, like, he, they were running their studio out of the Silent Barn at the time. And I think he just, like, you know, wanted somebody to take some some time and rent off of his hands. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about just like using the studio for a day. And he was just sort of like, why don't you use it on a month to month basis and learn how to be an engineer? And I was just like, Oh no, but maybe Chris would like to do that. <laughs> and um, yeah. So then I, you know, I approached Chris about it and we just sort of like teamed up and over the, that was in 2017. And like over the course of like three years, I sort of like rapid fire learned how to, engineer stuff like mostly uh, Chris taught me a lot of things and that because when we came into it I didn't know anything so he taught me a lot of things and then you know things would come up where like he couldn't make it or like at some point pretty early on like he got like a really bad stomach flu and so I had to do everything myself for like a couple weeks Mm -hmm. and I just like yeah sort of a trial by fire way just like learned how to do it and then I you know discovered like a new to me, like a new lens through which I could look at music or something. Yeah, I, I was going to ask if that also sort of fed into your songwriting process, if having a, maybe a, a more fine-tuned sense of how to make a song sound good on the studio end maybe helped clarify some things before you even got to the studio when it came to writing songs. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always, my approach to writing songs has sort of always been from a recording perspective. 
that's just how I learned how to do it, you know, mm -hmm. like obviously in a way more crude way, just like recording through the laptop mic into GarageBand and then they're slowly getting more advanced through decades. But like, so I've always, I, you know, I feel like I've always had that approach of like, I don't want to say like minimalist because I feel like my music is pretty like maximalist <laughs> actually, but like, but just, you know, what, like, how do we get down to the essence of each of these ideas harmonically and, and rhythmically and make them fit together in a co like a coherent way? But then I think if anything, doing a lot of engineering has just sort of helped me in a psychological way just sort of be okay with... In the past, I would have thought of it as like taking the easy way out. But like, especially Chris really drove this into my head that like, yeah, like it's okay to think that there's like a right and wrong option for where you want to go with the music. It's okay to like the right thing can can be the obvious thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with convention. And it's like to me that is so liberating. I feel like a lot of people who have studied music on like an intellectual level have that problem where like you assume because you're making like a conventional choice that you're going to be scrutinized for not being original or something. But in reality, those things aren't even perceived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes like overthinking it and finding the more complicated route actually undercuts whatever effect you were trying to have to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a lot of immediacy. It can take a lot of immediacy out of it. And it I've gotten <laughs> it helped me in a in a way because I felt like I would I would music would like cut like come to me and I would get it written down or recorded or whatever. And then I would really puzzle over it and labor over it, like, oh well, where could it possibly go from here? And then I had like a period of like kind of liberation where I was like, It's okay to just finish it out in a simple way. And now I feel like I'm at a point where I'm just like, okay, well, it's done. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, right. There's no why add, why add anything. <laughs> like, it's, it's fine for something to be a minute and thirty seconds long or less. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a brief phase in college where you know I, I went also went to music school, and so I had yeah. like a prog band on one end, yeah. and then I got like picked up to play in this like really grimy like thrash metal punk band at the same time. Yeah. And so I was writing like twelve minute songs in one, and like thirty second songs in the other, and it's like oh, yes. both can exist, and they <laughs> both are beautiful in their own way. You know. They're both great, and and in fact, like I don't I don't want to appear to be in any in any way self-loathing about this i'm not I, I not my intention but like i sometimes when i go back and listen to stuff i wrote for sister helen i'm just like dumbfounded by how like stream of consciousness it is mm -hmm. you know when there's like the songs not to say they're like oh it's just riffs but there are like seven riffs that just sort of like fucking slam like one after the other no repeated sections like it's fuck, you know the lyrics read like fucking james joyce and it's just like so much like yeah. and it's just i i can't i can't give an unbiased ear to it but listening back to it now i'm just like could could somebody listen to this <laughs> like, <laughs> could somebody even hear this like yeah i mean like my impression the last time i saw y'all play live i mean i was definitely like 
had my wig blown back by it, but it was also like, this is a, a lot of music. And, and <laughs> the fact that you were all able to perform it at that level kind of speaks to that kind of telepathic simpatico yeah. mind state that you have to get in after playing for that long. So, uh, cause otherwise like having that many ideas, I feel like would just be dizzying to say the least. It's truly, it was truly a psychotic band. And like I think that was so much of my intention back then was like, I want to, you know, I want people's hair to be blown back mm -hmm. at the end of it. And now I feel less like that's, a, you know, that's not really my goal. My goal is like to figure out what I want to say and make that statement as succinctly as possible. Right. And what I love is that in the Stimmerman material, you didn't necessarily sacrifice like horizontal complexity. Like the harmonic uh, material is still like very challenging at times in like a good way and exciting. There's a ton of like surprising choices and you know, it can get rhythmically naughty, but yeah, you're right. It does feel much more compact and kind of directed. Yeah. I, I've, th thank you. I mean, I, I feel like I, um, that's, that's what I'm going for continually. And I have to like, I need like a support group and constant reassurance from myself, like constant checking in with myself when I write something now where I'm like, it's not dumb, is it? Like, it's not too, it's not too dumb. Like, but there's, that just, a, I don't think that even exists, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, going back to System of a Down, plenty of very dumb songs that. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> So much of the music I love is hella fucking dumb. Like, I don't know why I'm so hard on myself about it. Like, I love boneheaded music. Mastodon is so fucking dumb. Like, that's why people hate the hunter, because it's dumb. They're kind of, they ride that balance of being smart and extremely stupid at the same time, which is like the, that's the peak of heavy metal, in my opinion, is if you can do both. Oh, yeah. I also have, you know, I have like uh Maybe you feel this way. You can tell me, but like as a, as a person who is like has always, I've always valued really high energy shows, and like I've always had a bent towards heavier sounding music. And as I get older, I feel like I wear anger less gracefully than when I was young. And so I'm I'm also like check in about that as well, where I'm just like, it, is it not is it appropriate, but like is can can it be honest for me to like get up there and be like yeah fuck you <laughs> fuck all of you right i mean growing up kind of makes fuck all of you hard to <laughs> to say without some degree of nuance it's like well fuck you guys on these specific terms in this way but also not like <laughs> yeah i, I, mean, I know what you obviously mean. i don't feel like that as an adult you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i my my attitude about it is that there's still plenty to be angry about Yes. Broadly. And so I don't necessarily feel embarrassed about liking and making music that is like specifically has a lot of anger in it. But right. the way that that then reaches the audience, like I'm not interested in being like antagonistic and like pushing people yeah. around and, you know, that sort of stuff is like, uh, I'll leave. I don't think I've ever run the the risk of being antagonistic per se, but like. I guess I sort of began to discover this, like, being on tour with Sister Helen all the time, because, like, towards the end of our, like, tenure as a band, I was doing, like, Helen was doing all the main vocals, and I was doing, like, a lot of this, like, pitched screaming, mm -hmm. 
that was the division of labor and like in order to do it honestly i felt like i had to be in that place emotionally like all day and all night and i just started to feel crazy like just like living with that much rage and despair like in in preparation for you know like a performance in front of like maximum 100 people <laughs> so, like, so i feel like even though i've definitely value anger and like value criticizing things that deserve criticism i mean like i i don't necessarily value like holding on to that on a you know minute to minute basis anymore so like that has required a lot of re-examining of my musical aesthetics too because like that can i've found that to be tricky like the music that comes out of me naturally like purely speaking like the music that comes out like how can i shape that into a completed picture that doesn't involve some performance of anger mm-hmm. that i don't relate to necessarily and so after that first ep did you tour for that band or what was like what happened in between the first ep and the uh, the full length i had an extremely eventful year <laughs> after that I, put, I i think it was released in april of 2018 and during that year wonder park moved locations and then i was in princess nokia's band and we like we didn't even do that many shows when I was in her band, but they were all like flying to festivals mm-hmm. and stuff. And so like that was very time consuming and sort of like kind of different from other tours that I had done up to that point. And uh, I was also on tour. I was on tour with somebody else that year, and I'm, it was such a bad experience that I'm not even going to say who they are. <laughs> so. But that was it was very time that was also very time consuming. So like I released that album in April and then sort of didn't even get a chance to like think about what I wanted to do with that project until much later. Stemmerman didn't play our, our first show until August of that year. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like slapped together a band and we did like one or two rehearsals and then the show and then I re and the band was big. It was me, Chris, this guy Russell Holtzman playing drums, Adam O'Farrell, who still plays trumpet in the band. He was playing trumpet, and Carlos was playing keys. It was like this very arranged version of it all. And like we played that show, and then it was, and then we did a tour later in the year, but I brought it way down to like a power trio Mm -hmm. and kind of changed all the arrangements and then shortly thereafter i started recording goofballs both of those albums were just like in a way working through material that had piled up from between as far back as 2014 like up to 2017 and like fleshing it out and making sure that it it all got its its due And then we spent most of, yeah, I spent maybe like six to eight months working on that album and simultaneously doing a lot of shows in New York. And then we did a couple like mini tours, including one with Tiny Gun, like leading up to the release of Goofballs. And then 
That came out in December 2019. <laughs> it's basically been crickets since then. Sure. We did like one or two shows at the top of that year. But yeah, the release of it the release of it was like pretty brutal. It it released on the the same day that like a, my really close friend he died from cancer. Jesus, I'm sorry. So like and I real, you know, I did not think he was going to die. So like that definitely I didn't even really notice that it came out to be honest with you and then like the we I canceled the release show which was supposed to be like a couple days later. It was the same day as his funeral. So didn't do that and also didn't care that I didn't do it, you know, and so, like we sort of regrouped I got my shit together a little bit, uh, you know, and thought that it would be good to, like, re-engage with playing some music. So, like, we did a show in January, which was cool. I think we did another show in February, and then it was, and then everything was locked down. Mm -hmm. Given all of that unexpected, tragic circumstances, is it difficult for you to think about that record in a clear way since it's done, or have you been able to sort of hear it with fresh ears yet oh, i listen to it sometimes yeah i mean i to me it's not to me the album itself is not like marred with tragedy or anything i mean like to me the you know the death of my friend dylan was so overwhelmingly devastating and like life-changing that i don't think it's possible for me to tie it in with anything else like sure i can mention as an aside that like all these things coincided with the release of that album as a matter of circumstance but like to me those are two separate totally separate things of course (laughs) i I just didn't feel comfortable necessarily like immediately asking you questions about the record without addressing the circumstances by which it landed in the world you know yeah, I know that's a hard thing to just like, mm. <laughs> breeze past in a conversation. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to be like, oh, what was playing festivals like? <laughs> you know? Interesting. You mentioned that. Well, <laughs> yeah. That does sort of feel like the general tone of talking about music these days anyway. Yeah. Like so much of the, the trouble of do, even like continuing to do this podcast is like making sure that I'm not like ignoring the fact that shit's real shit's bad, bad generally you know <laughs> shit is real bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't ignore it yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like i i don't you know I, to to some degree it's like everybody's responsibility to 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 talk about things being bad right but like you do, you know you got to you got to find stuff in your life that keeps you sane. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, you don't, I don't feel like every conversation has to be injected with horror. Although the last 45 seconds of this one, <laughs> we definitely have gotten there. So, so how was playing festivals? <laughs> <laughs> you mean with, with, uh, with Princess Nokia? Yeah. Like, well, I, I actually am kind of legitimately interested about like the experience of, going from doing the more DIY touring stuff versus like 
because <laughs> I know it's not necessarily yeah. everyone's favorite part of the industry and of the live yeah. industry in particular. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. I had done, I mean, I've done like a lot of random fucking tours and gigs, like not random to say that they're not like important to me or whatever, but like not projects that I'm involved with in a creative way or whatever. But like, so, I mean, leading up to that, I've had my fair share of doing like, quote unquote, like bigger shows. And But to, so the, like doing Coachella and in the other few shows that we did, like, I'm not, it, it was cool. I mean, the, the, the crowd was large, mm -hmm. very large, <laughs> and that was cool. <laughs> but um, I feel like I, I've played a couple shows of that size, and to me, I feel like that was like one, one thing that I feel like I've heard people say, but I didn't really want to believe it because you always believe that there's like, there's a higher thing you can get to, and when you get there, it's gonna be fucking awesome. But like, what you know, the difference between playing for like 150 people and like 3,000 people is not really noticeable to me. I mean, like, the difference between like two people and five people is a lot. Yes. And the difference between five people and 20 people is a lot. And the difference between 20 people and 100 people is a lot. But then like 150 up, I feel like is all basically. It all basically feels the same. <laughs> like, right. Like how many of those 3000 people can you even like hold in your mind while looking at that many people at once? So it, it, it yeah, does exactly. kind of blur together. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's like, to me, it's the true like transcendent experience of the show is like just how fucking lit the crowd is. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't not to say that the crowd was not very excited at like festivals and stuff that I've done because they were, but like, Doing like a house show where there's 70 people who are going like apeshit wild has certainly felt better to me than some shows I've played where there's like a thousand people and but they're kind of like, hmm, yes, <laughs> good, good show. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and even then, if like a thousand people are engaged, yeah. again, it's like how much of that compared to like the intensity of doing it in such close quarters, I'd imagine would would feel different, too. Yeah, I've I played lots of shows where you're separated with the barrier mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I feel like that definitely takes away a certain level of energy, you know. And to me, it's also like maybe I'll be proven wrong at some point. But to me, like the peak thing that I can do at a show is get to that zone where I'm like not conscious of anything anymore and like like once that's achieved there's sort of nowhere else to go right you know like and that that's not dependent on the number of people sometimes it's just dependent on the band you know totally given that you aren't able to find out whether the most recent version of Stimmerman is able to do that given you know COVID <laughs> and whatnot uh, but you have still done other stuff during yeah. lockdown and, and sort of the impetus for this particular interview was the video game soundtrack that you released earlier this year uh, for get a grip chip. How did That's that right. come about? 
Okay. I don't know how much research you've done on your own, but I'm going to I'm going to be totally transparent and tell you that one of the developers is my brother. Ah. <laughs> nepotism strikes again. <laughs> Nep full on fucking nepotism and boy is it sweet. <laughs> but I do, you know, it was it wasn't for not like my, you know, I don't think my brother had ever seen or really listened to Stimmerman and then he came like some of the developers came to the show we did in January. Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter, they were like, do you want to do this soundtrack? And I was like, yeah, sure. And we were kind of hammering it out. And then the lockdown started and I sat in my room for seven uninterrupted weeks and <laughs> banged it out. <laughs> so what was the process for that? Because it's, this seems like such a weird challenge of like, Video game music requires you to do a bunch of different stuff yeah. Uh, in terms of like genre, mood and vibe, but also writing music that can both be like present and but not so present that it like distracts or like annoys the person yeah. playing the game. Uh, so yes. it just sounds like there's like a lot of different spinning plates. So how did you get like where did you start for writing that? Well, first of all, man, I wish I had taken the time to pull this up. I'm not going to look for it now, but like the... The Red Start, which is the the name of the company, the like the Red Start team sent me like a basically like a spreadsheet of the different worlds, like what the theme of the world was, and then what the different moods were that they were looking for in each world. So like there's like the fire world, and the fire world needs like one fast tempo once not the tempos are moods but you know like sure you know like one one slower one one faster one one medium one and then one boss level and so my approach to that was basically that i would just go first thought best thought through the whole thing so like i would basically until i finished what i did was i would just get up every day sit down at my desk and just start and just know there's just no going back. So it's in that way, the chip soundtrack is like, I sometimes I feel very sentimental about it because I can really hear like my mental state at the beginning of the lockdown <laughs> in it. <laughs> like that was like, that's all it was. Like I, you know, I have like, like an MPK mini and like a guitar and I was just like, okay, like I'm just like first drum idea. That's that. Okay. What, what bass is going to sound good with that drum idea? Okay, mm -hmm. now let's make a little melody and like just at a variety of tempos. And uh, then once I had something that was like two minutes long, each one is about two minutes long, then I would go back and add like ear candy. So my, my yeah, so basically I would come up with the form, make sure that it had solid bones as best I could, and then I would switch from from you know beats and bars switch to like seconds and every five seconds or so i would make sure that something changed mm. so there's a new little melody or there's like a new percussion element comes in or something like that just so it is like i don't know like beat oriented in a way that it's they're usually like a b a and each of those sections is like deeply repetitive but there's lots of little stuff stuffs Lots of little stuffs coming in and out that um, maybe my hope is that you would not notice until you are on the 13th listen, 
which you will be if you play the game because it's kind of difficult. <laughs> um, and then the uh, each world ends with uh, like a, a music level, basically. So um, the whole the whole game is timed to the music. Somebody somebody who's better versed in F mod could explain it better, but like instead of being mapped to minutes and seconds, everything in the game is, is mapped to a BPM. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then each, the boss level of each world is a music level, and those are the pieces that are like way more intricate and a little bit longer. And those, uh, I wrote a little bit differently. Those, so all, all of the other ones I wrote pretty much in like a, almost like a let, let's just sit down and make a song kind of way where I was just playing on like a drum pad or a synthesizer or like a guitar or something and just going. And then the boss levels I wrote down, you know, like mm. uh, I wrote them all down in like Sibelius. And those were like similar in so far as I would kind of get the form. Like I, I would get two, I would, I would sort of, pick a tempo and then figure out how much usually I would start with drums figure out how much drums I would need to make it to like two minutes and then I would go in and make different changes to the form dictated by the drums and then I would go in and write usually the arrangement as it started would be bass drums piano and like alto sax or something um you know, like whatever the like jazz band preset is in Sibelius. And uh, I would go in and write, and instead of making like very clear cut ABA forms, I would be adding in a lot of extra beats, extra measures, weird little melodies, like basically different things that the game could react to. Mm. Because the idea is like, okay, like there's gonna be like st- a stop time drum thing and the drums are going to play some crazy fills and every time there's a drum fill chip is going to go like flying through the air or like there's you know this song is in 11 but every time there's a bar of 3-8 you like fall off into a new challenge Mm. and so it was like you know a lot of stuff where the game was going to have to react to the music so I, I wrote those with the intention of just like no one can fault me for there not being a lot of material in here. <laughs> so, c- and, considering uh, that those boss levels are so clearly synced to the music, were was there more of a back and forth to make sure that you were not like in some way, like just to make sure that you were introducing the challenges at the right time or not making the game extra difficult although that seems like it isn't necessarily a problem or a concern uh i'm just uh, curious to see if there was more of a a symbiotic relationship between the game design and the uh the music that you had to write there was a fair amount of back and forth um but maybe not necessarily in that way i feel like for the most part with the boss levels like i would i would write them I would be, I would sit down and write them all in it in one sitting and then you know like bounce the super crappy Sibelius MIDI version and then it would either get approved or like we would need like a moderate tweak and I would go in and tweak like one or two little things and then I would take it and like actually arrange it and everything but more more of the back the the most intensive back and forth stuff is was with the 
intro music and outro music. So like the little, I, I don't know if you've actually looked at the game, but like the little, um, there's like a little mm-hmm. animation at the beginning and a little a- animation at the end. And though, and with those, because the way, the way the game is set up is like, there are different triggers in the game. So like when you hit it, it is symbiotic in that way where like the music is not necessarily dictating what happens, but like in the game, you have to hit a trigger. And once the trigger happens, like the music changes, the game changes, all that stuff. So, um, and everyone should play it. It's very fun. But um, the intro and outro stuff w- right. is just an animation. So, like, getting that right required some really obsessive musical choices. And if you watch those, if you watch those and you're listening from a musician's perspective, you're going to be like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? In that this is music? definitely the reaction I get like, for the opening track is just like, yeah, you know, I, I just did the, the eyebrow <laughs> yeah. thing from the meme, but uh, yeah, <laughs> again, it's just like, whoa, this is changing directions very quickly, and in, in, in directions yeah. I don't expect, uh, and with a lot of notes. Yeah, like if you're if you're watching the animation, all of those things line up with something that's happening in the animation. But like, so so what happened with that was like they came up with like a basically like a storyboard. Or maybe it's an animatic. Um, my terminology with this stuff is not great, but like a, a no, a storyboard. Yeah, like mm-hmm. a timed storyboard. So I, it had the timing and like the basic action, and so I r- wrote in really a very neurotic way a piece of music that lined up with the storyboard, basically by like p- like picking a tempo and like watching the storyboard and being like, okay, well, at this tempo, there are seven and a half beats of this scene. So I'm going to write seven and a half beats of the introduction and then nine and a half beats of like, oh, they're all having fun. And then five and a half beats of, oh no, something bad is happening. And so I wrote all of that in a way that I felt was coherent. And then, of course, when I got when it moved past the storyboard phase and got to the animatic, it was like everything had shifted <laughs> just a little bit. But like, I'm sure as you or anyone who writes music knows, like you can't, when you're writing in that way, like you can't change, you can't change yep. milliseconds. Like you have to, you have to fig- just figure out a totally different, a totally different way to approach it musically. So those pieces ended up being like a little like cuckoo bananas, but no, like <laughs> that was that was where the most sure, back and yeah. forth was is this like sort of like doing composing for other projects or for other media is that something that you like to do more going forward is do you find it interesting i do find it interesting i would love to do more of it it's definitely it's a challenge in some ways and it's very freeing in others uh, sort of because of the thing i mentioned earlier which is like my my biggest challenge and aspiration is is writing something that just like feels complete like feels like a world onto itself and like that's very hard and I don't know if I'll ever do it right and like but when you're composing for somebody else like they they have mapped out 95% of the world and it's your job to just like capture the spirit of that and complement it and for other media and then working on other I've arranged music for other people's 
projects too and that to me is like also uh, just a little bit easier because it's like as long as you don't have like a fucking ego about it like you you know you're basically just brainstorming like you know i've got x y and z in my toolbox like let's try x you know if you don't like x then you know Mm -hmm. let's try h (laughs) (laughs) and so what do you have what kind of projects are you working on now do you have anything lined up for the future i know that's a tricky question because of covid but it seems like you're you're capable of still staying busy in one way or another yeah well i'm trying trying very hard to write a new stimmerman album and i've got some good ideas that's that's like sort of my ma- i'm doing like a co- i don't know how much anybody wants me talking about anything i'm doing like a couple arranging projects for some other people and like i've got some albums that i've that i worked on prior to lockdown that are like finally getting wrapped up Oh, we did Helen's solo album. That should be done pretty soon. That'll be really, yeah. that'll be cool. Um, yeah, I'm trying to write new Stimmerman stuff and like it's it's pretty slow going. I'm trying to be gentle with myself because I just, you know, like crapped out a 25 song soundtrack and like that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of material, but like I, I've, I feel very strongly that I do want to make some more Stimmerman music, but like I'm sure as, as anyone who writes music knows, like you, sometimes you just can't force it, you know. But I am trying <laughs> to force it. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time out for this conversation. If there's anything else you want to drop in before we wrap it up. No, I, I don't think so. But Oh, yeah, the game. The game right now is on sale. Everybody should get it if they have a Steam account. And if you don't have a Steam account, it's coming out for the Switch in a couple months. So fucking hold on to your ass and Fuck get yeah. a copy. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll include all the various links that we need to in the show description and whatnot, too. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you get back to forcing out that record on your own terms. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thank you, Ian. Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Eva, for joining me. You can find Stimmerman's music at stimmerman.bandcamp.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, or you can go straight to the source and get the RSS feed from soundcloud.com slash lamniforms sounds. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give the show a good rating and review. You can also get in touch with me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. More episodes soon.